Turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, and again, if you are searching for the book of Jonah, you'd want to turn to the end of your Old Testament. You will find the minor prophets there, and as you turn through them, you will come to the small book, Jonah. Last week, as we looked to Jonah chapter 3, we saw an incredible time of grace in which Jonah was restored as the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. But we also see Nineveh, the greatest city in the ancient world at the time, was brought to this incredible repentance by the grace of God that a people far from God are brought to believe God. And God's glorious grace shines brightly in Jonah chapter 3. And as we come now to Jonah chapter 4 in the conclusion of Jonah 4, we might expect Jonah to pray, but I think we might be inclined to think that Jonah is going to pray in the same way that he prayed in Jonah chapter 2, this climactic prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. God, you have done what no one else could do. Praise be to God. But unfortunately, we, unfortunately, we do find Jonah praying and speaking with God, but it is not in the way that we might would expect. And yet, in spite of Jonah's unexpected response, God continues to show his sovereignty and he continues to show his grace not only to the people of Nineveh but to Jonah as well. So if you have found your way to Jonah chapter 4, we want to consider the compassionate grace of God together and I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please Lord, Isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it, He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted. And he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we conclude the book of Jonah this morning, it will be helpful for us to reflect on the sovereign grace of God that we've seen over the past few weeks in the book of Jonah. It is God showing grace to Jonah in calling Jonah to go to Nineveh. But Jonah flees God's call and goes to 
uh, away from Nineveh to Tarshish. It is God who graciously hurls a storm on the sea. It is God who graciously intervenes in the life of Jonah so that he is thrown overboard to be swallowed by this fish appointed to Jonah, to swallow Jonah. It is God who commands the fish to uh, spit Jonah out onto dry land. And it is God's word that comes to Jonah a second time. We have seen God's grace again and again in the first few chapters of Jonah. It is God's grace that comes to the people of Nineveh through the preaching of Jonah as he brings this message of judgment to them. And it is God who is working in the hearts of the Ninevites to bring them to believe the message and repent of their sin. And it is God who has graciously relented of the disaster that he threatened against the people of Nineveh, the disaster that their sin merited. And so when we talk about the book of Jonah, typically I think that's where we end the story. We reflect on God and what he does in Jonah chapter 1, and we reflect on Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, and then Jonah is spat out on the ground, and he goes to Nineveh and preaches, and the entire city repents, and God relents. That's typically where Jonah ends I think in our minds, but we find here this morning that Jonah chapter 4 continues, the story of Jonah continues, and although chapter 3 shifted to God's grace to Nineveh, chapter 4 returns to exploring Jonah's relationship with God. It seemed to us that Jonah had made some progress, and certainly he did, but it seemed that Jonah had made some significant progress in Jonah chapter 2 as he's praying from the belly of the fish. I suspect that living in the belly of a fish for three days will give a man some perspective on life and what's important. Certainly Jonah finds some perspective there, but in the belly of the fish, he promises to fulfill what he had vowed. And so he goes to Nineveh at the Lord's command. He preaches the message that God had given. But now in Jonah chapter 4, we read here that Jonah is greatly displeased and furious with God. You see, Jonah's anger is very revealing because as we saw in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Unfortunately, we have a lot in common with Jonah all too often. Whether it's his disobedience and his rebellion and running from the call of God, or whether it's his resistance to preach the message that God had given to him, or whether it's his anger at the way that God has acted in his world, we often share much in common with Jonah. And so here in Jonah chapter 4, he is angry with God. Not just at God for what God has done, but he's angry at God and believes that God has acted unjustly in what he has done for the people of Nineveh. Jonah thinks that God should have done what Jonah wanted God to do. And that is to destroy the people of Nineveh. He had no desire for them to repent. He had no desire for God to show mercy to them. And so the question comes to us then this morning from Jonah chapter 4 is, have we ever been angry with God? I suspect that I'm not the only one that has the ability to identify with Jonah in this passage in which I've been angry with God because he acted in ways that are sovereignly wiser than what I thought should have happened. And yet in the moment, I believe God to have acted unjustly in my life or in the life of someone else. I've been angry with God. 
But our anger with God is always sinful because we are effectively imposing our own law and our own standards of morality on the God who is the standard of morality himself. As the sovereign God of the universe, he is the one who declares what is right and wrong. He has instituted and imposed his law upon humanity. And when we become angry with God, we are imposing our law over his And so this passage helps us to understand our wicked hearts when we find ourselves angry at the gracious, compassionate, good, sovereign, and wise God who is actively at work in our lives. And so in this passage, we see this great contrast between the act and work of God and the working of Jonah. As Jonah, excuse me, as God is filled with compassion, Jonah is not filled with compassion. As God is concerned about people, Jonah is concerned about things and his own personal comfort. And so we see this contrast between God and Jonah, but we also see this contrast between Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 and in Jonah chapter 4. You see, Jonah chapter 1, Jonah disobeys, but then he prays rightly and he confesses to God and he declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm going to fulfill what I have vowed. But now in Jonah chapter 3 and 4, Jonah has done rightly. He has obeyed God and taken the message to the people of Nineveh, but now he prays wrongly in opposition to God, desiring grace for himself in chapter 2 and judgment for others in Jonah chapter 4. And so Jonah chapter 4 then is a call for us to submit ourselves to God's will and character and to be conformed to God's will and character. You see, we look here in verse 1 that Jonah is angry. Look with me again there. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Now, this isn't the reaction we were probably expecting. You would think that after the miracle of Jonah chapter 3 with 120,000 people, pagans uh, on their knees before God in sackcloth and ashes, that Jonah would be praising God. He's just preached a message of judgment and God has brought repentance to them and relented of that disaster. But Jonah wanted God to carry out the judgment that he has promised and he's now greatly displeased, it says. He's burning with anger. You might could literally translate the Hebrew here in verse 1 is that it was evil to Jonah. Just as the evil of Nineveh has come up before God in Jonah chapter 1, here in Jonah chapter 4, it's as if Jonah is saying the evil of God has now come up before him because the thing that displeases Jonah is verse 10. God relents of the of the disaster it says so God relented of the disaster he had threatened them with and he did not do it Jonah 3:10 and this greatly displeases Jonah not just a little bit but greatly emphasizing the severity of his displeasure and his anger what is Jonah so angry about 
It is that God had relented of the judgment that He had threatened upon them. He saw the Ninevites in their wickedness and their violence and in their rebellion against God and Jonah had passed judgment upon them declaring that they were worthy of the judgment that God was going to bring upon them. But as God relents and shows mercy, turning from His burning anger, Jonah now turns in burning anger towards God. He believed them to be worthy of their judgment. And Jonah had experienced the consequences of Nineveh's sin firsthand. And so now he believes that they should also experience consequence for their sin. Jonah believes that justice demands judgment. Brothers and sisters, I don't want our familiarity with the book of Jonah to remove the sense of astonishment that we ought to have when we read this. That this prophet of God who proclaims the message of God is now angry at God for bringing repentance and showing mercy to this people. How is it that he could be angry? Why is he angry? Well, as we look to verse 2, we see Jonah praying and his anger is a response to his knowledge of God's character. He says there in verse 2, Please, Lord. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord. Isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This prayer is very different than the prayer that Jonah prays in Jonah chapter 2. And in doing that, he quotes from Exodus 34, meaningful verses for the people of God in the Old Testament. These verses are cited again and again in the Psalms and in Nehemiah and also in Joel. They're cited because of their importance and they're important because they are a very direct self-revelation of God to his people about his own glory. He reveals his character and nature to them declaring that he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards those who would call upon his name he genuinely cares about them he has tender affection and mercy psalm 103 says as a father has compassion on his children so the lord has compassion on those who fear him god is compassionate knowing that we are frail children of dust He's gracious, giving us His favor, though we do not deserve it. He's slow to anger and patient and long-suffering. And God was burning fiercely in His anger towards the sins of Nineveh, but because He is long-suffering, He granted space for repentance and turned from His burning anger. It says that He relents from disaster. God has shown mercy to the people of Nineveh if the people turn from their sin by God's grace he turned from the disaster that their sins deserve and Jonah says God this is why I ran in the first place it's because I knew who you were I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you would relent of the disaster. I didn't want to tell them about who you are. I didn't want to tell them the message you gave me because I didn't want them to repent. And so Jonah tries to reason out his disobedience. He knew all of this about God and he didn't want God to show the grace to Nineveh. 
you remember back in the first week that we were in Jonah chapter 1, we were reminded of the truth that sound doctrine does not always lead to obedience. And here we see in the life of Jonah that this continues to be true. He's quoting the very words of God about God. He knows God's character well, and yet it is leading him away from obedience, leading him to disobedience because Jonah still has the idolatry. As we're going to see later in this chapter, he still has idolatry swelling up in his heart. Though he has sound doctrine in his head, his heart is full of idols, and he is in those idols rebelling against the one true God that he knows so well. Sound doctrine doesn't always result in obedience. And so here we see this contrast between Jonah and God. God shows mercy and Jonah wants judgment. God shows grace and Jonah wants destruction. God shows compassion for the nations, but Jonah wants compassion only for himself and his people. But this, con- this section also contrasts Jonah with Jonah in chapter 2. There's this incredible irony that happens in the book of Jonah as we reflect on its comparison to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah thought that God's grace was good enough for him, that it's good enough for the people of Israel. He cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, you have sent this fish to deliver me. I was drowning at the bottom of the sea, seaweed wrapped around my neck. Lord, I understand now salvation belongs to the Lord. But now, this grace that was good for Jonah is not good for others. And so we might ask the question, how does Jonah get to this kind of place? I think there's a certain degree of prejudice in the heart of Jonah. He is a member of the people of Israel. He's a prophet of the people of Israel. And so because he has been sent by God to the enemies of the people of God, Jonah is withholding the grace and favor for the people of Israel to himself and for his people. He believes that it shouldn't fall on anyone else, especially those who are oppressing the people of God. I think there's also a degree of legalism in the heart of Jonah. He believes that evil people deserve judgment, that the enemies of God's people deserve condemnation. He's operating out of the same mindset that a few months ago we saw in the Friends of Job, this retribution principle. They've done evil, therefore they ought to get evil. They've done wrongly, God, you must punish them for their wrong. If they had done good, like myself, then they would get good. And so he's operating out of this legalistic principle, but that also leads him into self-righteousness. There's a certain extent to which Jonah has forgotten who he is and forgotten his own need for grace. It's only been a few short days since he's been vomited out by a great fish, and yet he's forgotten the deliverance that God brought to him and the symbolism of that deliverance for himself that God saved him and rescued him in a way that he could not save and rescue himself. And so in his self-righteousness, he's now moved away from a posture of grace to a posture of justice. Jonah thinks that he knows better than the Lord because he is self-righteous in this way. And he's now become so angry that he wants to die instead of seeing God's grace to Nineveh. 
Instead of praising and imitating the character of God, Jonah would rather die. He would rather die than see the enemies and oppressors of Israel experience the grace and compassion of God that his kinfolk back home have been rejecting. He would rather die. And so God asks him the question there in verse 4, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Have you done well, Jonah, to be angry? And so we want to think about that question and ponder that question and learn more about it as God asked it again a second time in verse 9. But for now, let us recognize that Jonah is angry because God has shown mercy. But God, even in asking this question to Jonah, is actually showing Jonah mercy. God could have said, Jonah, I have had it with you. You are going to get the judgment that was warranted by the people of Nineveh. I'm going to pour out the destruction on you that I had threatened upon Nineveh. But instead, God again comes compassionately and graciously to Jonah and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? God comes in the same tender compassion that he came to Jonah the first time and the second time. He comes now a third time to Jonah in grace and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And so, dear church, as we consider these verses in Jonah, let us recognize again afresh that our sound doctrine does not necessarily result in obedience. Let us tremble before God in humility, brothers and sisters, lest we be like Jonah and know true things about God and know sound doctrine and yet be living in active opposition to the will of God. Consider the sovereignty of God. He has appointed a storm he has appointed a fish he's appointed a worm a, a plant he's appointed a scorching wind he's done all of these things sovereignly and actively in the life of jonah to help jonah to see that his disobedience is not in conformity to what he knows and believes about god and though it may bring Jonah discomfort for a time, it is the sovereign acting of God and His grace to bring Jonah to conformity to the will of God. Dear Christian, in the same way, I would have you to see this morning that God will act sovereignly in the lives of those who believe and profess His name to conform their lives to the doctrine that they profess with their lips. When our lives are opposite of what God's will and what His Word reveals about Himself, God will actively work. And it may be painful to us in the moment, but God will work to conform us to Himself. This is what he does in the life of Jonah to conform Jonah to the character of God. But I think we also want to be warned here, brothers and sisters, and recognize our need for ongoing repentance. You see, Jonah confesses and cries out to God in Jonah chapter 2, repenting of his unwillingness to fulfill what God had called him to do. And so he repented of those motives and repented of his resistance. But here we are again in Jonah chapter 4 in his rebellion. And so brothers and sisters, let us be reminded this morning that our repentance most likely will not be a one and done. In fact, it is guaranteed in the scriptures that the Christian life must be continually marked by faith and repentance. 
We can't repent of something and then say, well, okay, I'll never do that again and become self-satisfied in ourselves that we somehow have strength and power in our own ability to turn from the sin that once held us. Jonah is an example to us of that. We must repent today, but as that sin stirs in our hearts tomorrow, we must give ourselves to repentance to the Lord again. But I also think that this is a passage that reminds us of our need to show forgiveness and grace to those who have sinned against us as God has shown forgiveness when we have sinned against him. You see, the mindset of Jonah is here is that God, they have wronged me and they have wronged my people. Therefore, they must pay for what they have done. He would rather see judgment than grace, punishment rather than forgiveness. And so the question for us then, is there ways or are there times or are there people in our lives that we would rather see judged because of the wrong that they have done to us than show the grace of God? Do we desire punishment for them rather than forgiveness? Is there a place or a person in our life where we would rather see God's judgment than His grace? We can go further with that question to ask, are there times in which we celebrate God's grace and forgiveness towards us but demand retribution when others have wronged us and keep a record of wrongs against the people who are in our lives? How easy it is for us to want mercy but demand justice for another. The grace that is good for us in our minds sometimes is not good for others, especially when we feel personally affected by their reception of grace rather than judgment. We demand that God must right this wrong against us. And we're doing that. We're saying that vengeance really belongs to me. And our standard of righteousness must be God's standard of righteousness. We say in our minds, God, don't you know what they did to me? Don't you know who they are? In this way, the tendency of our heart is to become like the debtor in the parable of Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes to the Lord Jesus and says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? And Jesus tells him a parable of a debtor who owed this tremendous debt, this immeasurable debt. And he cannot pay it. And he's forgiven by his master. But as soon as he is released from his master, he's been shown this great, great grace. He goes to someone who owes him very little and demands it. And when the person says, I cannot pay you in this moment, he throws him into prison until he is able to pay his debt. This is exactly what Jonah is doing here. And that's exactly our tendency in our own sinful hearts is to demand grace from God for ourselves, but demand justice for others. Let us be reminded of who we once were and who we still are apart from the grace of God that we might be overflowing in that grace to others. But one other reminder that I think these first few verses of Jonah chapter 4 brings to us is that we must desire grace not only for ourselves and for our people, but for the nations. You see, I have known some, I've known people at one time that 
really only cared that their immediate family know the grace of God, those who are nearest and dearest to them. And so long as their immediate family had experienced the grace of God, they were satisfied. And it didn't really matter if the nations knew about God. It didn't matter if the neighbor across the street knew about God and knew His grace. As long as they were sure that those who were closest to them were going to be in heaven with them, they were satisfied. The word of Jonah chapter 4 to us then is that Jonah was satisfied for himself and the people of Israel to experience the saving grace of the Lord. He was, he was satisfied to cry out that salvation belongs to the Lord as long as that salvation is coming to me and to my house. But he was not satisfied to cry out that salvation belongs to the Lord when it warranted God's call upon his life to go to the people of Nineveh, to take the gospel to his enemies, and to preach good news. Do you desire for sinners to experience the grace of God, dear Christian? Do you celebrate his forgiveness not only in your life or in those closest to you, but do you celebrate the grace of God in those far from you? Let us not merely be concerned for the salvation of those we know and indifferent about the salvation of those who are far off. This is the first four verses of Jonah chapter 4. These are the lessons that we learn here. But Jonah doesn't learn the lesson so soon. And so God, in verses 5 through 8, gives him something of an object lesson to show him what God is trying to teach him about his anger. You see, we see that Jonah goes on to, to pout. He goes up in verse 5 on the east side of the city, and he finds a place. He makes a shelter for himself there. And he's not just resting, I think. He sets up a shelter, and he's in it for the long haul, hoping and watching the city to see if maybe this repentance isn't real, that they're going to turn back to their sins, and that God is actually going to pour out the judgment that he once threatened upon them. I think Jonah is very much prepared to sit there in this makeshift shelter for 40 days to see if God does something at the end of it. And while he's sitting there, God causes this plant to spring up and it provides shade and it gives ease for his discomfort. And Jonah is greatly pleased with this plant, it says. He has found great affection and, and great desire and great love for this plant. He's greatly pleased. He's enjoying its comfort and its ease. But the next day, God causes a worm to come. He appoints this worm to come and to destroy that plant. And at the very same time, God appoints a scorching wind, a hot wind to blow upon Jonah. And Jonah is once again in the same place where ready to die. It says there in verse 8, he said, It's better for me to die than to live. In verse 9, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And so God now inquires again about Jonah's anger. But in inquiring about Jonah's anger this time, after showing him this object lesson of Jonah's affection and love for this plant, God is now showing Jonah something about the anger within his heart, asking him this question, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? You see, this gets to the heart of what anger really is, because the heart of anger is, 
idolatry, brothers and sisters. The heart of anger is something sitting upon the throne of our hearts that ought not to be there. And so Jonah now has his own comfort and his own desires and his own moral standards at the center of his heart. And everything has to revolve around that. And as soon as his comfort is removed from him, Jonah is overwhelmed in infuriating, burning anger because the idol of his heart has been stripped away and it did not give him what he thought that it would. And so anger is a response of the heart to the circumstances that negatively impact the idols of our hearts, a response to others who are intruding upon that idol or even God himself when what he tells us to believe and to know interferes with what we want to believe and to know. And so anger reflects our moral judgments of the heart and it reflects our sinful, idolatrous tendencies whether we realize it or not. So the question then comes to us is does what we perceive to be evil and what we perceive to be wrong, does that correspond to what God perceives to be evil or wrong? Because there is such a thing as righteous anger, brothers and sisters. But if we're being judgment day honest with one another, rarely is our anger righteous. Because righteous anger means that we're angry about what makes God angry. But oftentimes we're angry not about what makes God angry, but about what makes me angry. Because it is intruded upon what I want for myself. It becomes about my moral judgments. It becomes about my preferences. It becomes about my own desires and standards of righteousness. That's precisely what James chapter 4 is about, brothers and sisters, when, God, when, when James speaks to the church and asks them, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the passions that wage war within you? Is it not the desires of your heart? Is it not what's inside you? It's not about the thing that's causing the conflict. It's about the thing that you desire most within your heart. That's why he says in verse 4, Spiritual adultery. Oh, you adulterous people. You have given yourself over to an idol and another God. You're not desiring to please me. If you were, you have not because you ask not. And you have not because you desire to spend it upon your own lust. Our comfort and our own moral judgments and our standards of righteousness become a ruling desire. That's why Jonah lashes out in a burst of anger towards God because God did not satisfy his standard of what is right. Why is he so angry that he wants to die? Because that which was worth living for is no longer his. He is so angry that he wants to die. The idolatrous desires of his heart have let him down and stripped away the joy of life in the process. Therefore, he's angry unto death. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I think there's tremendous application for us here, not just in our relationship to God, but also to one another. We see then when we find that we are angry against God because there is some perceived wrong against us that God has not done what we think that God ought to have done. The problem is not with God, but with the idol that has found residence in our hearts. And we must confess that examining ourselves. There is grace, God says in James 4, for the humble. And he exalts them. 
And so when we identify these idols, brothers and sisters, we must confess them, repenting of them, and conforming ourselves to God's desires for us. But I think this also has implications for our anger with one another or those closest to us. Because the source of anger and conflict is not the thing itself. It's actually the desires, the idolatrous desires that are waging war and creating conflict within our own hearts. And that manifests in a number of ways, brothers and sisters. It doesn't have to be the kind of outburst that Jonah has here. God, I'm angry enough to die. Our anger doesn't look like that all the time. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it looks like bitterness. Sometimes it looks like conflict between one another. Sometimes it does look like these fits of anger in which we display our contempt for one another. But God is revealing to Jonah that, Jonah, your desires are not what they ought to be. And so God answers what they ought to be in verses 10 and 11. It says, So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. You see, God is demonstrating here that the people are more important than Jonah's measly plant. Jonah, you desired your comfort. You desired this plant that is giving you shade and comfort in life. You desire the pleasures of this world and you desire for your own moral judgments to be upheld. And God is showing Jonah, Jonah, there are people who are dying and perishing in their sin and they are more important than your measly plant. Jonah, you didn't even put any investment in that plant. I appointed it to spring up and I appointed it to be removed and you are now angry because it's been taken away from you. How much more than Jonah? How much greater ought my love to be for the nations? Jonah, that's why I sent you to the people of Nineveh. Because I have a compassion for the nations and I have a compassion for you. I've made them and they are lost in their morality. They don't know their moral left hand from their moral right hand. They are lost and confused in their sin. Jonah, these are people who bear my image who have gone astray and now I've sent them to you to redeem them back to myself Jonah how much more important are they than this plant and so Jonah ends on this very strange question you cared about the plant but verse 11 may I not care about the great city of Nineveh And it doesn't have an answer because I think the answer is so obvious. The the answer is begged by the very question itself. Of course God may care about these people. Of course God may have a heart for the nations. Of course God may send a prophet to redeem them and to preach a message of good news to them. It's such a common sense answer that it doesn't need an answer. That's exactly what Jonah is trying to show us. That the pleasures and things of this world amount to nothing compared to God's heart for the nations and our role in it. And so the call of Jonah chapter 4 is to lay down our idols and care about what God cares about. 
You see, Jonah expresses this anger because it exposes the idolatry in his heart. He responds in anger rather than in repentance. He responds in anger because his comfort and his pleasures have been stripped away and he's not concerned about what God would have him to be concerned about. You know, brothers and sisters, I've been awestruck at different times in my life when I've traveled over great distances just in the United States or perhaps on on flights to Canada and other places at just how many people are in the world. I mean, there's enough people in the Octibaha, Webster County area. There's a lot of people in the world. But as I travel, there's hundreds, thousands of that number of people all over the world as we travel through America. And God has a heart. He cares for them. His affection is set towards redeeming a people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And I'm here concerned about my plant. I'm concerned about what brings me comfort. I'm concerned about what brings me joy and contentment in a very present kind of way. And I can't see the heart that God has for the people of the nations of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. God's call for us, the obvious answer, should God not have the right to care about the nations, is echoed in the same question for us, ought we not care about the same? Is it right that the people of God should seek to emulate the heart of God and have a heart for the nations? Is it not right that we would prioritize the advancement of the gospel over our own comforts? Our investments in our plants and our possessions are so small in comparison to the people that God has affection for. Dear Christian, I ask you this morning, What brings you contentment? What brings you joy? What brings you pleasure? What brings you gladness of heart? Is our joy attached to our comfort, our ease, our success? Or is our joy attached to the kingdom of God? Let us examine ourselves to see the idols of our hearts, the things that if they were stripped away, if God said, this is now gone and removed from your life, I've appointed a worm to take it away from you. That we would cry out in anger against God rather than seeing that He is stripping away something from me that has become an idol to me before God and has taken a place of the heart that I ought to have that mirrors the heart of God for the nations. Let us examine ourselves to see what brings us joy. Do we find greater joy in our comforts and pleasures of this life than we do in the people of the nations being saved? And so, we, dear, dear church, we see as we come to the conclusion of Jonah chapter 4, God is a God of compassionate grace. And all through the book of Jonah, His grace has shined brightly. And it has shined most fully and most completely in the Lord Jesus Christ because He has done in Him what we cannot do for ourselves. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, He grants us grace to take away those idols and to set our minds and hearts on the thing that matter most to God, that ought to matter most to us. It is in Jesus Christ that He works to conform us more and more to His image. If we want to know what we ought to care about, let us look to Jesus, all things, everything that God does, even the suffering and the stripping away of our comforts, 
Romans 8.28 says, All things are designed for our good. That is our conformity to the image of Christ. Let us look to Him. Let us repent. Let us look to Christ to know the things that we ought to care about. If you're here this morning and you're realizing for the first time that you have idols in your life, if you're realizing for the first time that though you come and you pay lip service to God and you praise Him on Sunday mornings, but your affections, your loves, your concerns in life revolve around not God and His will for you, but your plants and your possessions and the things that bring you comfort in life. If you're realizing for the first time that that has warranted the judgment of God against you, and in this moment right now, perhaps you're even raging in your heart that God would even consider asking you to give those things up. The message of the gospel to you is that would you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? The things of this world are temporary. And the things of this world are appointed by God. The things that you have, the comforts that you cling so dearly to, do you not recognize that even these things are gifts of God to you? Just as God appointed the plant, He appoints the worm. But He also has appointed that the gospel would come to you today because He appointed a Savior through whom there is forgiveness and redemption. If you would look to Him, if you would confess your idolatry, if you would look to Jesus Christ, you would be saved. Oh, dear friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. Oh, dear church, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, we thank You for Jonah chapter 4. Lord, we thank You for how it teaches us of the idolatry that is in our heart. It teaches us that we have become so consumed by temporary pleasures and comforts. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see those, confess those, and turn from those. Lord, we pray for the one who is so consumed and blinded by their sin that they've given themselves over to these things. Lord, we pray that you would work a regenerating work in their heart, that you would raise the dead to life, that you would make the blind to see their idols, that they may turn from them to the living God. Lord, would you do the work that only you can do this morning in us.